Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on April 14th, so we're not taking any listener calls or questions this afternoon. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. We'd love to hear from you. This is the fourth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is titled, Divided We Stand, Can Diversity Be Our Strength? We'll talk about whether this is one of the most divided moments in American history. How have these fractured moments come up in our past? What role is the emergence of multiracial democracy playing in this current divisive moment? What role has play, race played in the divisions of the past? And can a polity come back from these serious fragmentations? How have we gotten by it before or have we ever? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host on the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests, um, David Blight, is with us from Yale. David is the Sterling Professor of History of African American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University. He's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, among many other books and articles. We're thrilled to have you with us today. David, welcome. Thank you, Anne. Uh, great honor to be here. And also with us is Cheryl Townsend-Jilks. Cheryl is the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Colby College. She's also an ordained Baptist minister and the assistant pastor for special projects at the Union Baptist Church in Cambridge. Welcome, Cheryl. So pleased to have you here. And thank you. And I'm pleased to be with you. Honored to be with all of you. So let's go. We've come through a tumultuous period in American politics that has shaken our faith in democracy and the rule of law in our fellow citizens. We've seen an insurrection at the Capitol that prominently featured white nationalists. Longstanding divisions have been exacerbated by social media and foreign actors. But we've brought some of these divisions to the party ourselves. They're generations old, some of them. On January 7th, Adam Serwer wrote in The Atlantic, that multiracial democracy in America is young and fragile, just a few generations old, and the insistence by the insistence by a largely white political party that the victories of its multiracial counterpart are illegitimate is deeply familiar. In other words, we've been here before, says he. He's referring, of course, to the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Since the 2020 election, we've seen hundreds of voter suppression bills introduced around the country that would dis disproportionately affect minority voters. So we're here to talk about is race the fundamental question. So David, let me put it to you first and put it more broadly. Is this one of the most divided moments in American history or does it just seem like it? Well, it, it is, I think, uh, one of our most divided moments in terms of our political culture. Um, we, we have, a, we have a, an enormous array of social and cultural issues over which we are divided for sure, and we could name many of them. But we have political institutions that are broken or all but broken. 
the United States Senate is not a democratic institution. It's not working. Uh, Congress itself has been in a kind of long-term paralysis. The courts in America no longer have the faith that we probably wish we had in our courts because at least at the Supreme Court level and the federal court level, they have been so politicized. And you mentioned voter suppression. Uh, we haven't since the age of segregation had uh, an assault uh, this wide and deep on the right to vote. Uh, so we are reaping not just uh, recent events right now, uh, the Trump presidency, the polarization you know, being the common term for our, our divided politics, we're really reaping 30 to 40 years of a political movement uh, from the American right responded to by, um, well, I'll call it the liberal left if we want over time, that has moved our politics more and more and more to the right. However, we are now experiencing, there's a little hope in this, a revival that most people tend to call a progressive revival against that conservative movement. Uh, we are not, uh, though we've been worried about this, we are not on the brink of civil war. Uh, we, have, we have small civil conflict, to say the least especially in response to, to police shootings as we're experiencing at this very moment in Minnesota and many other places. Uh, we have civil conflict over visceral issues like guns and like uh, abortion and like immigrants at the border and what is an American. Any one of these issues has the potential of exploding and dividing us even more. But I think our particular, our moment now is, is especially uh, fearsome in the sense that we've got political institutions that really just are not working. And in democracies, political institutions need to work. We've, we've taken a sigh, some of us, you know, from the middle to the left because Joe Biden was elected, because two senators in Georgia managed to squeak out victories and you know, and, and overcome that Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. But it's a very fragile hold on power by the Democrats. So, uh, yes, we are in a very divisive moment. In fact, that election of 2020, I was asked many times leading up to it, the only other election I really felt at that time that it could be compared to was 1860, uh -huh. because we genuinely worried, for good reason it turns out because of January 6th, we genuinely worried whether the side that lost would accept the result. Yeah. And the only other election in our history, we've had some very divisive elections, we've had some disputed elections, but the only other election we've ever had where the side that lost refused to accept the result was 1860, and that of course resulted ultimately in a civil war. Now, we're not there yet, but our politics is still as divided as it was the day before that election. Cheryl, why don't you reflect on that for a moment, one of the most divided moments in American history and compare it to some other examples from our past where we might also have been at each other's throats, so to speak. Well, 
well, I, I really appreciate what David did in framing this. It was helpful. Actually, it was comforting to me um, to have the political culture laid out in the way that it is. I have been working on something using Gary Allen Fine's theory of tiny publics. When Trump started running for office, all I could think of, and, and I need to back up, when President Obama was elected, my first question to myself was, oh dear, what's the backlash going to look like? Because I utilized Eduardo Benia Silva's conceptualization of a racialized social system. And in response to the question about, are we divided? A racialized social system is a divided system uh, by if one takes into account all of the conflict. However, the power relations can vary. And thank you again, David, for talking about political culture because there may be inequality, there's division, but the power relations are, are the folks who are clearly in power in charge of managing and manipulating that system, or is it fluid? Is it in conflict? Is the paternalist um, model off the table and the competitive model on the table? And so when President Obama was elected, okay, what's the backlash going to look like? Um, and then when Trump decided to run about two weeks into the campaign, I'm like, oh dear, could this be 1876? So when David said the election of 1860, my mind was on 1876, the Hayes-Tilden election. Mm -hmm. And my big fear during that entire election was that we may end up with the election in the House of Representatives because of the way in which his various speeches spoke to very specific con constituencies some of which um, David just named. So two weeks before the election, a colleague asked me what I thought. And I said, well, I have my first sentence of my op-ed, if Mrs. Clinton wins. And he was shocked as an economist, if Mrs. Clinton wins, if Mrs. Clinton wins. And I said, we have to take seriously W.E.B. Du Bois's um, propaganda of history essay and realize there's a whole population that we don't pay attention to when we're talking about race in America. And I was very fearful that their descendants were going to give us Trump. And they did. Yeah. And they did not. I said, he doesn't need to win the popular vote. He just needs to know which counties in which states he needs to get the electoral vote. And the very next morning when I woke up, I shed a tear, went back to sleep, turned on the Today Show. And there was a man from Cambridge Analytica, actually the director, bragging about the way in which their polling operation had done precisely what I said <laughs> they could do. So we have this very predictable reality of division. It's a racialized society. And that racialization, that racialized conflict is facilitated I think one of the other things that I'm concerned about is the way in which religion functions to exacerbate. And in this current, thank you again, David, for saying political culture, religion is playing an outsized role in mobilizing these tiny publics around these various issues. And we're looking at quote unquote white evangelicals who are heirs 
to the major divisions of religion that were engendered during slavery, the split of the Baptists, the split of the Presbyterians, the split of the Methodists. Um, the Baptists will never come back together. Um, the Methodists are getting ready to split again. And again, there's tension with the Presbyterians over issues of sexuality. Um, my potential book title is Blessed Be the Ties That Divide in Terms of Religion and Race. And so, um, yes, we are highly divided, but we're divided in a different way right now. And there are folks for whom power matters so much they are willing to work hard to exploit those divisions, those constituencies in order to keep power. As one conservative said to our dear colleague, Mary Frances Berry, this is not about truth, it's about power. Right. David, I wanted to cycle back on something you said about, and then tie it in, in a little bit to Cheryl's comments. I mean, do you think that the Trump election was a backlash against Obama? Oh, no doubt. I mean, okay. uh, <laughs> lest we forget, uh, in 1980, Ronald Reagan ran against something as much as he ran for something. Reagan ran against the 60s. People forget that. He ran against feminism. He, he ran against, overtly ran against gay rights. He ran against civil rights. And, and, and built the modern conservative movement out of that. Now, Trump wasn't building a conservative movement per se, as, as the never Trump Republicans will be quick to tell you, he was building an authoritarian cult politics uh, that has many conservative elements to it. But oh yes, uh, the, the Obama presidency, as Cheryl was implying, you know, was always there to be taken by the right as its object. And of course, Mitch McConnell famously said the principal purpose of the Republican Party in uh, 2009, I think he said, was to make sure Obama never had a second term. Um, and it, it was in part Obama, because he was the first black president, but it was certain policies of the Democratic Party, like the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, climate change and so on and so on. Or, or Paris Climate Accords, et cetera, or the Iran nuclear deal, which now we're, oh God, are we reaping the trouble of the Trump, you know, harvested with that. So sure, um, but Trumpism, it wasn't invented by Trump. Uh, Trumpism was there for a long time. Voter suppression actually goes back to the first term of, of the George W. Bush administration. And when you put John Ashcroft in as attorney general and they created a whole wing of the, of the civil rights division of the Justice Department, the purpose of which was to go out and find all that voter fraud that they couldn't find. Uh, so, and, and many, many other elements of Trumpism have been, have been developing for years, waiting for a demagogue uh, of the style and potency and television skills of a Donald Trump. Little did we know there was somebody like that out there who could actually uh, run and, and get elected. So, but Trumpism isn't dead either uh, now. Trumpism is still around and well. Uh, and it, I mean, this is the key to watch. Does it really have a deep and lasting home in the Republican Party? 
And thus far, 80 some days into the Biden presidency, the answer seems to be yes. Yes. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Divided We Stand. Can diversity be our strength? Our guests this afternoon are David Blight, the Sterling Professor of History of African-American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, among many other books and articles. Also with us is Cheryl Townsend Jilks. She's the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Colby College. She's also an ordained Baptist minister and the assistant pastor for special projects at the Union Baptist Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This program was pre-recorded on April 14th. No listener calls are being taken at this time. So, I mean, coming back to this, like how much of this do you think Cheryl has to do with, like um, Sewer said, with the emergence of a multiracial democracy and people's just really don't want that? Well, and, and this is one of the moments when my frustration with journalism and its lack of historical depth can be a problem. <laughs> what do we mean by multiracial democracy? There's a new book out by Edward Ball titled Life of a Klansman, Family History in White Supremacy. And he, in the, at the very beginning, he points out that he had a conversation with a demographer who based on the number of people who belonged to the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, approximately 4 million people, meant that by 2030, they would have 137 million descendants in the United States. We, we, again, this goes back to who do we take seriously? Who have we ignored when we're trying to make sense of the United States as a racialized social system? The fear is largely a response to immigration. And it's not the first response to immigration. It is, and the ways in which people have organized to exclude involve race. I currently teach at a small liberal arts college in Maine. And people say to me, but you're in Maine? There's no black people in Maine. And my response, my first response is, well, I'm there. I have a wonderful video I show titled Anchor of the Soul, and it's about African-American culture and history in Maine. And what many people don't realize is that the state of Maine is the place where the first daytime unmasked Klan march in the United States ever took place. When I moved to Maine in 1987, the Klan had a march in Rumford. Now, they didn't have the march because I had moved to Maine. But it just so happened that they had a major march and a student who wanted to meet to talk about it. He was from Maine and he told me how the Klan did it. They Portland Sunday paper and put flyers in the paper asking people to come out and march with the Klan against blacks, Jews and Catholics. In other words, it was a reflection of what happened when the Klan reorganized in the 1920s at Stone Mountain to expand its, you know, 
those to, to, to whom they were against. You know, and so I, I point out to my students that when Dr. King is giving his speech in August of 1963, and he's talking about let freedom ring, Stone Mountain in Georgia, to look out mountain in Tennessee, he's naming two major clan organizing shrines in America. And 1865, 1867, you're talking about black participation in, in a democracy in the South. Uh, we just got through talking about the Wilmington massacre of 1898, all of those issues there. But also by the time we get to World War I, figuring out how to exclude the non-Protestant immigrants. And who are the non-Protestant immigrants? When we're talking about Southern and Eastern European people, the there, there is that, you know, that fluidity, um, the challenges given the racialized system that we have in the United States, one that's by ancestry and not by appearance, such that Italian immigrants to Louisiana have to have the embassy step in and say, no, they really are white and stop lynching them, please. Um, all of these different ways in which this nation has fought against people who are different. At the same time, W.E.B. Du Bois thought that sociology was the most important discipline because it could look at a unique society that had multiple inputs of different cultures. So that image of the possibility of a multiracial democracy has been there, but it has been resisted. Yeah. And it is, the problem is that what we're now calling systemic racism, Southern Democrats who were fighting against the voter participation of Black people in the 19th and early 20th century labeled white supremacy. And I have to show the students the leaflets that the De Democratic Party leaflets that say white supremacy in North Carolina and Alabama to get them to understand that these are not new phrases that we've invented to talk about now, but that it is part of a longer struggle. And it, one of the ways in which um, Lyndon Johnson was able to get that bill passed, the Hart Seller bill, was he basically convinced um, folks in the Senate, hello, that it wouldn't change immigration all that much. Wow, it changed. Right. We're having the resistance to that immigration. And, and it is brown people Many of them professionals, no one talks about that aspect, that they're filling in spaces uh, in know, hospitals, emergency. And, yeah, yeah they're, they're the frontline folks. They're the frontline yeah. doctors. They're the frontline professionals. Um, so, David, David, talk a little bit, you know, pick up on what Cheryl's saying about how shifting demographics um, and the diminishing white majority, you know, how is that sort of behind the resentments that are boiling up now? Yeah, well, the uh, the Pew Center for Research has an enormous array of great data out there for anyone who wants to look it up. But the, the changing racial demographics of the United States is at the core of our politics. In fact, we thought the 2020 election, to some extent it was, but we thought the 2020 election was going to show us that demographics is destiny. 
That is that the Republican Party could no longer really survive as the white people's party, which it has become. And yet there are cracks in this theory too, because it turns out a good one third of American Hispanics broadly defined uh, do tend to vote Republican. And even especially larger numbers in certain regions like South Texas. So, and you know, Trump, I guess, drew in a few, you know, a, couple, a few percentage more of black male voters for reasons we could debate. So, demographics may not be totally destiny in our politics, but a party building itself on racial, white racial resentment. And now, essentially, without a platform of viable policy and, and a party simply throwing itself into gerrymandering and voter suppression as a means of staying in power may have its days numbered. Although I think we have to be very careful about predictions based upon this kind of demographic study alone. Uh, because the Republicans are very good at winning in regions and winning in districts. Uh, lots, lots and lots and lots of, of elected Republican officials, especially in Congress and especially in the House, know they are in safe districts because of gerrymandering, and hence they take these positions. I, I do think it's important for Americans to understand this. We, we can all wring our hands about how heinous and ridiculous some of these voter suppression measures are. But don't sell them short. They will do it. They have shown us they will do it. And they will do it over and over and over again. However, back to the demographics, one quick moment. Yeah. Uh, they are important, there's no question. This is the most multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious nation on earth. We have been for a very long time. There are millions and millions of Americans who think that is our strength. I think that Jeff Gardner is. calls us an, uh, an assimilation machine or something, but maybe that's not really true, right? Well, actually, it is true to a great extent. However, look, in politics, we're talking about who can get 51%. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, could, you could go to a gathering of 10,000 people and 90% of them would be good, solid, multiculturalist Americans. You can go to another gathering and only 10% of them would be. You know, I like to use the term just because Frederick Douglass used it, I guess, but he called America the composite nation. He gave a, one of his greatest speeches was called the composite nationality. He gave it in 1869. It's this grand vision of all the peoples of earth, you know, coming to America and living under basically the 14th amendment. And the 15th Amendment. He gave, he gave that speech right on the, on the cusp of the passage of the Voting Rights Amendment. The 14th Amendment of equal protection of the law had already passed. In the middle of that speech in 1869, he made a robust argument for Chinese immigration because it was becoming a big issue then. In fact, it would lead then to the first Chinese Exclusion Act of 1874 and the big one in 1882. But Douglas says to Americans, get ready. The Chinese are coming. There are millions of them. And they have an ancient culture, three and 4,000 years old. They're going to bring their strengths, their powers, their intellect. And he based it all, just as you say, Anne, on an assimilation model. Now, we could argue whether it was right or wrong. But he said, look, 
they will adopt our creeds because the creeds are universal. They'll bring their culture and adopt our creeds. Well, that's, that's, that is the American idea, isn't it? But look, the politics of white racial resentment is very old and it's always been, especially in times of fear and crisis and economic collapse, it's always been incredibly useful. When it works and where it works is usually a product of historical circumstances and context, and even of shocking events. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, and you mentioned Chinese, so I want to talk about China in a slightly different context. I mean, we know like right now that Russian bots are exacerbating and playing upon these longstanding divisions in our polity. Well, um, have, have our enemies found our fatal flaw? I mean, I know they're driving wedges between us. Um, China, meanwhile, seems to be learning that multiracial um, acceptance is not a way to run a modern democracy and they're practicing genocide on some of their, their own racial minorities. I mean, is this our fatal flaw? And, um, you know, are, are the Chinese and the Russians right to look at us as a dying enterprise? What do you think, Cheryl? It's not so much that they're looking at us as a dying enterprise, it's that they're trying to figure out how to make their own societies work. And they're a very astute observers of our history. Um, Maybe more so than we are ourselves, eh? Well, well, we spend a lot of time in denial about the weaponization of race and its role in our society. Uh, we lie to our, the nation has a habit of lying to itself. And it's one of the reasons, and this is where Du Bois's image of African-Americans having second sight. We, we often talk about this double consciousness as some kind of flaw, some kind of angst that cripples African-Americans. But Du Bois uses things in a dual way. And when he says we're born with a veil, it means we're born with a sense of vision and an ability to see things that the rest of the, that the, rest of the society cannot see. And race and racism African-Americans see the world in a different way. Since the January 6th insurrection, I've been posting on my social media. I've been borrowed from the Tommy Shelby's book title, which was taken from W.E.B. Du Bois's essay on art as, art as propaganda, We Who Are Dark. And we who are dark know how dead we would be if we had tried what the folks tried on January 6th. And there's a whole range of issues around which African-Americans move that white Americans just don't grasp. They see what happened to George Floyd as something, it was a lightning flash that refused to go dark and people were shocked and they went out in March. But 30 years ago, when Rodney King was beaten in the street, I just so happened to be showing a film the next day in class that had Dr. King speaking in front of Lincoln Memorial. I just wanted to get through class and go home because I was so angry about what had happened to Rodney King. And one of the students, bless her heart, raised her hand and said, 
what would Dr. King think of what happened? Of course, when students ask questions, we must answer their questions. And sometimes we talk a little bit to get our words together. And I said to the class, and it, it was one of the few times, one of the times I had a class that was entirely white. And so I said to the class, if they decide to charge the officers, and this never happens. I, I, one of the students, one of the boys in the hollered, if they charge the officers, if they charge the officers, how can you say if they charge the officers? I said to them, every black person in, a, I said, Rodney King is still alive. Every black can name somebody who has died under far more egregious circumstances at the hands of the police. And at this time, Jet Magazine was still publishing. So you've read the stories about what happened in other parts of the nation that police union lawyers would then use as precedents to argue for the innocence of others. Nobody's paying attention to this except black people. And so we, and so even our friends who are part of liberal constituencies think, okay, we've solved this problem, we go on to the next. And they think it's gone away. And this is the way the nation, people of goodwill, people of ill will, people of every kind of will, lie to themselves about the role of race as weapon in our society, because unless they have that second sight, they don't see it. The fact Let me just do a quick station break, David. I see you put your hand up. I know you want to get a, get a comment in here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are David Blight, Sterling Professor of History of African-American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University, and Cheryl Townsend-Jilks, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Colby. Our topic today is Divided We Stand, Can Our Diversity Be Our Strength. This show was pre-recorded on April 14th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. So go ahead, David. I see you wanted to get... Well, I was only going to come back to your question about, you know, have the Russians and the Chinese found our weakness? Right. One thing the Russian and Chinese intelligence services, and I might add to that the Iranians and the Turks and whatever, one of the things they do understand is that democracy is very hard. And democracy requires people to give up something they care about, usually something precious, uh, in order to acknowledge what, a, what somebody else believes is precious. Democracies only function when we all are willing to give up something so that the whole can work. That's what democracy ultimately is. And it's hard. If you think about you know, the most robust democracies in the world, Let's just go back 150 years. One of them was that democracy that came out of the American Civil War for a while during Reconstruction. It was an amazing recreation of the United States. Um, but what did it come out of? The slaughter of a civil war. Another great functioning democracy, ironically, uh, like it or not, was the way Germany revived after the Second World War. Now, there were good reasons for that. Germany had, didn't have much choice. The Cold War, <laughs> the whole of the West was focused on them. But Germany by the 19, let's say, 60s and 70s was one of the most robust, West Germany, 
was one of the most robust democracies in modern history. And it still is, although it's having trouble with COVID. What did that come out of? The, the total destruction of World War II, the total criminal destruction of the Third Reich. Now, you know, I don't want to say to people, you only get a democracy when it comes after massive war. That's not necessarily the case. But what makes a democracy function is usually it knows what the dysfunction may result in. Now, Americans, as Cheryl's been saying, do have a tendency to uh, embrace parts of their history. It's almost part of our, you know, our genes, you know, that, that makes us feel progressive and hopeful and always moving upward and upward. Whereas our history is really as tragic as anybody else's. We just don't like to admit it. But democracies are very hard, they're fragile. And how many times have people heard that in the past few years? We've learned from this Trump era and before. You know, if, if we've learned anything from all of this polarization of our political culture, we have learned just how really fragile democracy is. And the 2020 election, uh, you know, as many bad things that, that, that happened, is a lesson. God, did we need it? That voting really matters that electoral politics really matters. And I have spent most of my life trying to convince young people that it matters. Now, they might've gotten a lesson that, that will stick with them for the rest of their days, I hope. Well, in the youngest demographic voted for the first time at rates equal to the oldest demographic. We've never, ever, ever yeah, seen that's that remarkable. before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We hope. That, is, that is amazing. Yeah, I have a I have a step grandson at Bates College, freshman year, first time he's ever voted. He didn't grow up in Maine, but he voted in Maine. He worked on campaigns in Maine, and uh, yeah, he's, he's part of that that new Maine voter block. <laughs> well, I mean, but that sort of does bring us to the question you're talking about, like, what does it take to get by these moments? And I, I think I read someplace that when we had major, major upheavals over immigration in the early part of the 20th century, those um, those explosive moments finally faded away when immigration cracked down. And I hate to think that the answer is a crackdown, um, you know, rather than an opening up. I, I know Frederick Douglass, prophet of freedom, I mean, had this very inclusive and beautiful vision of a huge encompassing democracy, but we aren't, we're not there yet. And like, how, how do we get there? Cheryl, what do you think? Well, one of the things that needs to happen is popular education. Um, the, I, I sometimes, people say to me, you know, what are you doing? And it's not just teaching students here at the college, but how do we connect with the community? Why do we do workshops that when people ask us to come? It's popular education. People need to understand their society better and better. They need to know who and what is real. When um, David was mentioning the different constituencies that voted in certain ways, talking to a couple of Black people who actually voted for Trump, they were part of the tiny public around immigration and the misapprehension of what immigration is about um, nowadays. And so, yes, you, you're observing 
the what seems to be a moving forward with a crackdown on immigration. But I would argue what happens is those crackdowns on, on immigration are the result of the Eurocentric white supremacist constituencies winning both in the Congress and in popular culture. So, and the more people know, the more people learn, the better, I hope. And I think many of the um, stalwarts in the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs would have said the same thing, that, you know, education will, will, will make it matter. And I want to believe that, even though there's another layer of real politics that um, with which we struggle. And what do you what do you think, David, about the well, you know, and uh, a way of thinking about this, and Cheryl made me think this. There are many legacies of Trump's presidency, and we'll be analyzing them for some years. But two of them are polar opposites. That's the usual irony and paradox of history. On the one hand, Trumpism managed to render facts and truth all but irrelevant for millions of people. Uh, that's a problem. On the other hand, Trumpism has also stimulated a desire on the part of Americans to know more history, to know from where they came. Look what we're doing here right now. Look what you're doing with this radio series. During the pandemic in particular, I have been on so many webinars, book clubs, public libraries. It's amazing. People are yearning to know more of their history, know more of their civics, if you like. Well, okay, yeah, well, and, and so there, there's, a, there's that weird dual legacy here that are polar opposites, but, but here's the challenge. We have to win this. We have to win this battle over education and against the, the just utter denigration of facts and truth. I mean, it's still, look at the so-called big lie. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's just remarkable how many people in our culture still believe that somehow that election was I know. I against know. all the obvious evidence. evidence. Yeah, and, uh, We're creatures of evidence. We're creatures of the tools of research. And sometimes I think academics have just been put back on their heels and have just, just don't know how to respond to this kind of uh, uh, misuse of information. But we've got to get right into the middle of it and fight with real information mm -hmm. because we can't lose this one. Cheryl, go ahead. I, I, ju I just want to sort of um, follow on what David is saying and, and, and in terms of the struggle over education. The fact that you have senators who want to pass laws preventing the use of the 16-19 project in public education um, the fact that just teaching about slavery in the United States, a 240 year institution that shaped our society, that has touched us, whether we go back 37 generations or 37 nanoseconds, everyone in this society has been touched and affected by it, that they want to suppress and silence the discussion about it. So yes, the issue of popular education is very, very real. 
You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are David Blight, Sterling Professor of History of African-American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University, and Cheryl Townsend-Jilks, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Colby College. She uh, is also an ordained Baptist minister. This program was pre-recorded on April 14th, and no listener calls are being taken. So, I mean, the idea that we have been ever unified as a country, I mean, is there any truth to that? You know, maybe momentarily here and momentarily there, but is, is this idea that we share a national um, belief or a national myth that we all embrace uh, this vision of an inclusive democracy? That's not really true, is it? Well, I think you got to be careful with that. Yeah, go for it. Um, you know, my parents were the World War II generation, the Depression and World War II generation. I was going to say World War II. Yeah. David. Well, I mean, my mother was the daughter of German immigrants. Uh, so that they had some complications over this, but she ended up a lifetime died in the wool FDR Democrat. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you know, uh, outside events, outside threats, uh, the shock of historical events have caused unity. Look at the unity in the wake of 9-11. Yeah. Um, it was remarkable for a while. We squandered it. Mm -hmm. uh, by 2003, by invading Iraq in one of the uh, you know, maybe the second greatest foreign policy disaster in American history. Uh, but what's but the first? I, I put Vietnam up there. Okay, a little bit above it, I think. <laughs> but you know, uh, and and there was uh, there was at least in the north a remarkable degree of unity. Uh, in the immediate wake of the Civil War, although that didn't last terribly long, uh, it's easy to find these, these deep divisions in our past. There's no question about that. You get into the late 19th century and you got the huge division, divisions between labor and capital, and then between rural and urban America. I mean, there's, there's always been, and there always will be. I mean, this, this constant you know, search for the for the the Shangri-La of the American dream playing out in the perfect Midwestern village somewhere with white picket fences has always been a myth. So uh, you know, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something to this American idea around which people can assimilate and unify. Uh, we all know that sometimes the most patriotic Americans are the recent immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, who don't have a, that much history yet. And they're, they're believers in the creeds. They can't help themselves. Um, now, to, I was, no, go ahead. Well, it's just that what we have to be able to, back to Cheryl's notion of education, what we have to be able to educate about is that history is full of division and tragedy and triumph. Uh, if, but if the ideas are strong enough to defend, then defend them and fight for them. Um, we, we actually still are, despite ourselves, despite our racism, despite this legacy of slavery, we still are, after 240 years, a society that lives under a written constitution. That's still fairly rare on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, that constitution is disputed and debated every day, and it always will be. 
you know, two thirds of all litigation in American courts are 14th Amendment litigation. We will always dispute the meaning of most parts of the Constitution. Um, but we still, we still actually live under something called rule of law, or at least we thought we did until parts of the Trump years. Yeah. Cheryl, I wanted to ask you a little bit as we're um, moving into the last seg- the last uh, part of our, our show here about economic resentment and in- income inequality. And to what extent do you think economic resentment has exacerbated some of the divisions now? And if that is a factor, do you think that the Democrats' progressive agenda, the infrastructure plan, the investing, um, can lessen some of those resentments and help sort of bind us back together a bit? I would just very briefly answer by saying the economic resentment is also tied to racial resentment. We're not battling with the weaponization of race in our history. Our approach to social safety nets and a range of other issues, including infrastructure, would not be as contentious as they are. There's a... um, and again, I'm invoking the, sec- the Du Boisian second sight because the, the, there's some very nasty material circulating, um, fostered, one of which was fostered by a Southern Baptist pastor um, calling the current vice president Jezebel and really, um, <laughs> and then, yeah, which it's, you know, the Secret yeah. Service doesn't realize that when when a white male from a formerly segregationist denomination uses the image of Jezebel, the Secret Service should be at his front door because <laughs> they obviously don't know their Bible. Okay, but they so there's that that piece of it. But there was also another very nasty letter uh, when one of the black pastors withdrew from the Southern Baptist Convention talking about all of our troubles are because they've been giving things to black people. And Melba Patilla Beals, who was one of the Little Rock Nine, writes a story, writes in her memoir about one of the boys who befriended her, who had a black nanny who got old and the parents discarded her and he was very concerned. And he said to her, my father says we shouldn't give black people anything. And so there is this ethic in this heritage of racism that has to do with racial resentment. And as a result, our economic behavior is tied to that resistance of including black people, even though the majority of poor people in America are white. Mm -hmm. So again, so I'm just invoking the second site to say that and why I use Eduardo Bonilla Silva's concept of a racialized social system because of the intercalation of ideas about race and racial resentment in shaping our approaches to economic policy. The fact that the right, the right wing wants to get rid of those segments, those cabinet areas in the federal government that respond to concentrations of African-Americans, urban life, education, um, also say something about the way in which economic 
resentment is tied also to racial resentment. I would argue you can't separate them. Do you want to comment on that, David? Income inequality and um, resentment? Yeah, well, I think we're on the cusp of Americans receiving an extraordinary lesson in the uses of government. Uh, ever since Ronald Reagan was elected, uh, we've heard a critique of government as the enemy and not the friend. And, and millions of Americans are now beginning to see at least evidence that the government may not only improve your life, your life, it, it may save it. There's a possibility here, although they only have about a year to pull it off, that the Biden administration, ironically, the Joe Biden, Mr. Moderate administration, who has become remarkably progressive overnight, uh, could do things with government authority in the economy, in the infrastructure, and in race relations that could have as much lasting impact as the New Deal did. And Americans may just learn here that they like government. That would be a revolution. Hmm. We are running out of time. We're up to the last few minutes, and I want to give you each an opportunity to take a couple of minutes and sum up, sum up your thoughts on, is diversity our strength, or is diversity going to tear us apart? And Cheryl, I'll let you go first. Just take a minute or two and um, sum it up for us. Basically, I honestly believe diversity is our strength, because if we tell the story of all of the peoples who have come to this nation and shared what Du Bois would call their gifts, we have all benefited from them. Just in teaching uh, my course, African-American culture in the United States, I tell students, I said, the next time you're in the um, supermarket and you're in the rice aisle, genuflect, understand that, you know, African technology and African skills got appropriated and we've all shared in that. Our, uh, when we're talking about Asian immigrants, when we're talking about Chinese immigration, and we have to be careful, and, and I, David, you warned us earlier with our pan-ethnic designations analytically, because it helps to tell specific stories. It helps to re lift every voice and it, it, to borrow, borrow from that uh, wonderful song. But people did, and, do, and, and Frederick Douglass was right, people brought skills that were utilized to build this nation. And those gifts have, we need to acknowledge those gifts. When Du Bois writes the book, The Gift of Black Folk, he's writing a book to help beat back the 1924 immigration restrictions that the Knights of Columbus were trying so hard uh, and obviously failed to do. But yes, I believe diversity is our strength. I think diversity is our strength. The fact that um, a superintendent in order to beef up, a superintendent in a Southern school district in order to beef up the, their access to teachers made learning Chinese a requirement so all of a sudden they needed Chinese immigrants to come in and teach in their school system that um, that that another school district wanted to draw Im immigrants from the largest English speaking nation in the world, India. So, yes, I believe it can be our strength, but we've got to embrace it. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, D David, take a minute or so and give us your final thoughts. Diversity, our strength, diversity, our Achilles heel. I'm going to use the word pluralism. Why not? It's yeah, go for it. Word. Yeah, go for Plur it. Pluralism is our ideal, but it's also our reality. 
I mean, go to any train station, go to an airport, go anywhere, go to the, go to the grocery store. Pluralism is our reality. It is our beauty. Every musical beat we have comes from somewhere and it's evolved through time. I mean, I learned, I, le I went to more jazz the year I lived in Germany than I ever go to here. I didn't realize how much jazz took over that country. You know, um, pluralism is what the United States represents to the world. And uh, we can, we not only can still get that done, that is who we are. And there's always going to be a fight against it. But uh, we, we are the pluralistic nation. It's, it's our obligation and it's our reality. Thank you both so much. We are now, alas, out of time. We could have done a whole another hour on this, I think. Thank you to our guests this afternoon, David Blight, the Sterling Professor of History of African-American Studies and of American Studies at Yale University and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Cheryl Townsend Jilks, the Cat John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Colby College. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUF. Um, streaming online at weru.org. Our website is lwvme.org at the League of Women Voters. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series, you can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Coming up next on WERUFM Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines, your community radio station, WERUFM.